Hey y'all, this is Lovely. Welcome to the Words of Love podcast where we talk about lifestyle, current events, and anything you want to talk about through the lens of a Christian perspective. Um, I hope you guys are doing well this beautiful Wednesday morning. It's so beautiful that the weather cleared up from the crazy tornado we had yesterday and God is just still so good. Um, today is another continuation of chemistry review for the chem exam and it's going over big idea number two in my a- AP Chemistry Princeton Review 2020 book. And it covers bonding and phases as the big idea. And it goes through bond overview, ionic bonds, metallic, covalent, Lewis dot structures, polarity, IMFs, vapor pressure, solution separation, kinetic molecular theory, Maxwell-Boltzmann diagrams, effusion, ideal gas equation, Dalton's law, deviations from ideal behavior, and density. And so, yeah, let's just get into it. Okay, bond overview. Atoms engage in chemical reactions in order to reach a more stable, low-energy state. This requires the transfer of sharing of electrons, a process that is called bonding. So bonding is a sharing of electrons. Atoms of elements are usually at their most stable when they have eight electrons in their valence shells. As a result, atoms with too many or too few electrons in their valence shells will find one another and pass the electrons around until all the atoms in the molecule have a stable outer shell. So they're kind of like playing catch with these electrons. You know, they're like, okay, I'm stable. Let's give one of my buddy over there and my buddy over there. And they're they're in a constant state of kind of like moving to figure out where they're going because they're sharing these electrons. You know what I mean? Sometimes an atom will give up electrons completely to find to another atom to another atom forming an ionic bond. Sometimes atoms share electrons forming covalent covalent bonds. So just remember that covalent bonding involves two different atoms sharing the same electron, whereas an ionic bond is completely giving one to, to another atom. All right, ionic bonds. An ionic bond is held together by the electrostatic attractions between ions that are next to one another in a lattice structure. They, offer, they often occur between metals and nonmetals. In an ionic bond, electrons are not shared. Instead, the cation gives up an electron or electrons to the anion. The two ions in an ionic bond, in an ionic bond are held together by electrostatic forces. In the diagram below, a sodium atom has given up its single valence electron to a chlorine atom, which has seven valence electrons and uses the electron to complete its outer shell with eight. The two atoms are then held together by the positive and negative charges on the ions. So we got Na plus in brackets. It's an Na in brackets with a plus on the outside. And then you have in brackets Cl with eight, uh, like the Lewis dot structure of, you know, eight electrons around it with two on each side and then the minus sign outside of the bracket. So just remember the charges go on the outside of the bracket, whereas the element and the distribution of electrons in the Lewis structure of it is on the inside of the brackets. The electrostatic attractions that hold together the ions in the NaCl lattice are very strong, and any substance held together by ionic bonds will usually be a solid at room temperature and have very high melting and boiling points. Two factors affect the melting points of ionic substances. The primary factor is the charge on the ions. According to Coulomb's law, a greater charge leads to a greater bond energy, often called lattice energy in ionic bonds. So a compound composed of ions with charges of plus 2 and minus 2, such as MgO, will have a higher melting point than a compound of ions with charges plus 1 and minus 1, such as NaCl. If both compounds are made up of ions with equal charges, then the size of the ions must be considered. 
Smaller ions will have greater coulombic attraction. Remember, size is inversely proportional to bond energy, so a substance like LiF would have greater melting points than KBr. Smaller ions will have greater coulombic attraction. So we have to consider the size of the ion and the charges of the ion. And it was saying that the ones with, like, for example, MgO, which is plus 2 minus 2, has a higher melting point than NaCl, which is plus 1 minus 1. However, um, if they're made up of the same charges, for example, like MgO and CaO, they're both plus 2 minus 2, you have to remember that the smaller ion will have a greater Coulombic attraction. And I don't have a periodic table in front of me at the moment, but I believe that Ca is above Mg, so therefore um, the smaller one, whichever one's higher up in the group, is going to have a greater Coulombic attraction and have a greater melting point. Um, so just keep that in mind. Um, in ionic solid, each electron is localized around a particular atom, so electrons do not move around the lattice. This makes ionic solids poor conductors of electricity. Ionic liquids, however, do conduct electricity because the ions themselves are free to move around, about in the liquid phase. Although the electrons are still localized around particular atoms, salts are held together by ionic bonds. So just remember that, you know, it doesn't collect, even though it's an ionic bond, it doesn't um, conduct electricity unless it's in a fluid state, so the electrons can move. Uh, metallic bonds. When examining metals, the sea of electrons model can be used. The positively charged core of a metal consisting of its nucleus and core elements is generally stationary, while the valence electrons on each atom do not belong to a specific atom and are very mobile. These mobile electrons explain why metals are such good conductors of electricity. The localized structure of a metal also explains why metals are both malleable and ductile, as deforming the metal does not change the environment immediately surrounding the metal cores. Metals can also bond with each other to form alloys. This typically occurs when two metals are melted into their liquid phases and then are poured together before cooling and creating the alloy. An interstitial alloy uh, metal atoms with two vastly different radii combine. Steel is one such example. The smaller, the smaller, much smaller carbon atoms occupy the interstices of the iron atoms. So we know steel is a mix of carbon and iron, and we see that carbon just has like a tiny radius because if you look at it on the periodic table, it's far, far to the right. Like going back to our discussion on periodic trends from the previous episode. When it's far to the right in that energy level, you know, it pulls the electrons in, it has a high electronegativity, you know, it has this very small radius. And then you have iron, which is in the transition metals area. And um, it's not, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't have as many electrons and it doesn't have as many protons as well, I think. I can't, I, like I said, I don't have the periodic table in front of me, so I can't tell if they're in the same energy level or not, but just... Um, remember interstitial alloy is, you know, they're big and little atoms. So therefore, like some of them are going to fall between the cracks of the bigger atoms and fall within those interstices. So that's how I will remember it. Um, and then we have a substitutional alloy, which forms between um, atoms of similar radii. Brass is a good example. Atoms of zinc are substituted for some copper atoms to create the alloy. And you can tell like it's called a substitutional alloy because they're literally the same size. So like think about it like lock and key, like you can just substitute one, or for, one for the other and it's, you know, there's not too much change that happens, if that makes sense. Um, 
Yes. So now we're going to go into covalent bonds. Covalent bonds, two atoms share electrons. Each atom counts the shared electrons as part of its valence shell. In this way, both atoms achieve complete outer shells. In the diagram below, two fluorine atoms, each of which has seven valence electrons and needs one electron to complete its valence shell, form a covalent bond. Each atom donates an electron to the bond, which is considered to be part of the valence shell of both atoms. And so it shows two fluorine atoms in their Lewis dot structures, each of them with seven electrons with the, like, for the first one, it has two on the top, left, bottom, and then one on the right-hand side. And then the other is the same thing, but mirror image. So the one dot is on the left of the fluorine. And so it shows when the two bond, they both kind of connect right there where the right and the left of each one kind of just click and they fit into each other and they have a covalent bond and they share that bond. Single bonds have one sigma bond and a bond order of one. The single bond has the longest bond length and the least bond energy. And so I remember thinking about this, like the single bond is like a little spaghetti noodle between them, like the uncooked pasta kind. So just think about how you know, it, um, that bond has a really bo- long bond length, but like not very much bond energy. Like it doesn't take much to snap that. Um, the first covalent bond formed between two atoms is called a sigma bond. All sigma bo- single bonds are sigma bonds. If additional bonds between the two atoms are formed, they are called pi bonds. The second bond in a double bond is a pi bond, and the second and third bonds in a triple bond are also pi bonds. Double and triple bonds are stronger and shorter than single bonds, but they're not twice or triple the strength. And so we have to just remember that the only thing that changes when we add more bonds is um, length. So like thinking about, there's not really anything that I can think of practically that does this, like with the spaghetti noodle, but just maybe if you instead took that long spaghetti noodle and cut it into pieces and you put two of them side by side parallel, you know, it would get shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, That length would decrease, but technically like the strength isn't really changing because it's still the same length of spaghetti noodle that you started out with. You know, it's still like not that hard, but like, you know, (laughs) more than one holding. I think you guys understand that concept. Um, So Then it has a chart that has a summary of the multiple bonds. Um, I guess I can text a picture of it into the group me if you need it. But um, with single bonds, it's one sigma bond, bond order of one, longest bond length, least bond energy. For double bonds, it's one sigma, one pi, bond order of two, bond length is intermediate, and the bond energy is also intermediate. And... Then triple, one sigma, two pi, a bond order of three. Bond length is the absolute shortest and the bond energy is the greatest. And so I'm I'm not really sure what it means when it says double bonds and triple bonds are stronger and shorter than single bonds, but they're not twice or triple the strength. I think, okay, so I guess it's saying that specifically it's not exactly two and three times more, but I mean, it is stronger. It does take more energy to break those bonds. So I just want to correct that because I think I said that wrong previously. So it does, um, it does get, the bond does definitely get stronger um, as, as you increased um, the, the number of bonds. Um, it's just not triple and twice um, the strength of the single bond. Okay, moving on. 
um, internuclear distance. The length of okay, oh, the, sorry, the length of a covalent bond depends on a balance of two forces. Let's look at a bond between two hydrogen atoms. A bond forms between the hydrogen atoms when the potential energy of that bond is at the minimum possible level. When the hydrogen atoms are too close together, the potential energy value is very high because the nuclei will repel each other. When the atoms are too far apart, however, the potential energy value is close to zero because the protons in the nucleus of one hydrogen atom are unable to attract the electrons around the other and vice versa. The minimum potential energy will occur when the repulsive and attractive forces are balanced. A graph of potential energy as a function of the distance between two hydrogen atoms is shown below. And it's a little bit difficult to describe this graph, but basically on the x-axis is internuclear distance, and that distance is increasing as you go from left to right. And then on the y-axis, you have energy increasing as you go from um, bottom to top. So energy is increasing going up, internuclear distance is increasing as you go to the right. And it shows two hydrogens who have really high energy right at the top, and then it just dips below this threshold of zero. Um, and then they become further apart, they're still connected, and then as their internuclear distance increases, it, it shoots back up to zero, and they're so far apart. So like it was saying, when, when the um, internuclear distance increases, the energy goes to zero. So that's something to keep in mind. Note that the dashed line marked marks zero potential energy. However, in this case, zero, zero potential energy is not the lowest value. Whenever we're dealing with potential energy, the more negative that value is, the lower the energy is. This is the same concept as looking at the potential energy of electrons at varying distances from the nucleus as we did on page 76. In this case, the bond between the hydrogen atoms will form at the point that is lowest on the curve. That represents the distance of 74 picometers and the bond length of any covalent bond will always occur at the point of minimum potential energy. So like I was saying on that graph, it goes like starts really high energy with, you know, too close, like the H's are basically in the same little circle and then it goes below zero, the curve just drops exponentially to a bond length of 74 picometers and they have like two circles like I'm thinking like kind of looks like the meiosis diagram where like or the mitosis diagram where they're like starting to split um yeah and that's where it's saying it has the best covalent bond the bond length of any covalent bond will always occur at this point of minimum potential energy and so it's like super low and then it curves back up to zero not quite as high as it was at the top when they were connected um and it has super high energy but it curves up just a little bit more and, and that curve kind of like evens out into a horizontal line. Um, okay, network covalent bonds. In a network solid, atoms are held together in a lattice of covalent bonds. You can visualize a network solid as one big molecule. Network solids are very, very hard and have very high melting and boiling points. So these are all covalent bonds. So just keep that in mind that these aren't ionic these are still covalent but they're still these network solids are still very hard and they have a very high melting and boiling point the electrons in a network solid are localized in covalent bonds between particular atoms so they're not free to move about the lattice this makes network solids poor conductors of electricity the most common seen network solids contain either carbon such as diamond or graphite and silicon sio2 which is quartz 
This is because both carbon and silicon have four valence electrons, meaning they're able to form a large number of covalent bonds. Silicon also serves as a semiconductor when it is doped with other elements. Doping is a process in which an impurity is added to an existing lattice. In a normal silicon lattice, each individual silicon atom is bonded to four other silicon atoms. When silicon atoms are replaced with elements that only have three valence electrons, such as boron or aluminum, then the neighboring silicon atoms will lack one bond apiece. So I'm still, I'm still trying to understand doping, so I'm going to read this again. It's a process in which an impurity is added to an existing lattice. In a normal silicon lattice, each individual silicon atom is bonded to four other silicon atoms. Okay, so it's in this lattice structure, silicon's bonded to four other silicons, okay? When some silicon atoms are replaced with elements that have only three valence electrons, such as boron or aluminum, then the neighboring silicon atoms will lack one bond apiece. Okay, that makes sense because... Okay, it's going to go into it. The missing bond or hole creates a positive charge in this lattice, and the hole attracts other electrons to it, increasing conductivity. Those electrons leave behind holes when they move, creating a chain reaction in which the conductivity of the silicon increases. This type of doping is called p-doping for the positively charged holes. If an element with five valence electrons, such as phosphorus or arsenic, is used to add impurities to silicon lattice, there is an extra valence electron that's free to move around the lattice, causing an overall negative charge that increases the conductivity of the silicon. And this type of doping is called n-doping due to the free-moving negatively charged electrons. And so p-doping is when, for example, if silicon is, I guess it's saying is, um, I believe silicon is a two minus. Why do I not have a periodic table? Okay, I found my periodic table. Um, silicon is, I just lost it again. Yeah, silicon is a two minus ion. So when you're adding a three plus to it, um, it becomes p-doping. It becomes positively charged. And then when you're adding something like phosphorus or arsenic, which is five valence electrons on it, then it's n-doping. I feel like in this case, it should be four, four valence or something like that, but I'll let you guys figure that out. Um, then it's going on to Lewis dot structures. Um, drawing Lewis dot structures. At some point on the test, you'll be asked to draw the Lewis structure for a molecule or polyatomic ion, and here's how to do it. One, count the valence electrons in the molecule or the polyatomic ion. Refer to page 70 for the periodic table. Oh, sorry, that's just from the book. If a polyatomic ion has a negative charge, add electrons equal to the charge of the total. Um, in part one. If a polyatomic ion has a positive charge, subtract electrons equal to the charge of the electrons from the total in one, which is the, the valence electrons. Draw the skeletal structure of the molecule and place two electrons or a single bond between each pair of bonded atoms. If the molecule contains three or more atoms, the least electronegative atom will always occupy or usually occupy the central position. Add electrons to the surrounding atoms until each has a complete outer shell. Add the remaining electrons to the central atom. Look at the central atom. If the central atom has fewer than eight electrons, remove an electron pair from an outer atom and add another bond between the outer atom and the central atom. Do this until the central atom has a complete octet. If the central atom has a complete octet, then you are finished. 
If the central atom has more than 8 electrons, that's okay too, as long as the total does not exceed 12. Let's find the Lewis dot structure for CO32 minus ion. Carbon has four valence electrons and oxygen has six. So in total, we've got, so with one carbon and three oxygen, we've got four plus six plus six plus six, which is 22. This ion has a charge of negative two, so we add two electrons. So 22 plus two is 24. In this case, carbon is the least electronegative and is the central atom. So we have a trigonal planar looking molecule with carbon in the center and then three O's coming from the top and bottom left and right in a triangular shape. We add electrons to the oxygen atoms um, and each oxygen atom has, um, sorry, each oxygen atom has three lone pairs around it. And then the bonds obviously are the the other um, two bonded electrons, but they're just depicted as bonds instead of as lone pairs. Um, we've added all 24 electrons, so there's nothing left to put on the carbon atom. We need to give carbon a complete octet, so we take an electron pair away from one of the oxygens and make it a double bond instead, place a bracket around the mo model, and add a charge of negative two. And so just remember, like, when you change the single bond to a double bond, that you're taking two lone pairs and making them into um, a bond. So therefore, you'll have a resonance structure, um, you know, where that bond will shift between which oxygen it wants to reside in. Um, yeah. When we put a double bond into the CO32 minus ion, we place it in any one of the oxygen atoms as shown below, and it shows it on each one with the each one is bracketed with a two minus and the outside and then arrows in between. And the only thing that's changing is the location of that bond and distribution of electrons. The strength and the length of all three bonds in the carbonate ion are the same, somewhere between the strength and length of a single bond and a double bond. To determine the relative length and strength of a bond in a resonance structure, a bond order calculation can be used. A single bond has a bond order of one. A double bond has a bond order of two. When resonance structures occurs, pick one of the bonds in the resonance structure and add up the total bond order across the resonant forms. This then divide that sum by the number of resonance forms. For example, in the carbonate ion above, the top CO bond would have a bond order of 1 plus 2 plus 1 over 3, or 1.33. Bond order can be used to compare the length and strength of resonance bonds with pure bonds as well as other resonance bonds. So basically, you have to just recognize like when you see a single bond, it's got a bond order of one. Double bond, bond order of two. So that's pretty straightforward. And so in each of these carbon, these carbonate ion um, molecules, you have, you know, single bond to an O, single bond to an O, double bond to an O. So you got one plus one plus two. So you got four over three as there are three total bonds. Um, so 1.33, and that is how you tell the bond order of, of your structure. Okay, incomplete octets. Some atoms are stable with less than eight electrons in their outer shell. Hydrogen only requires two electrons, as does helium, although helium never forms bonds. Borons considered to be stable with six electrons, as in the BF3 diagram below. All other atoms involved in covalent bonding require a minimum of eight electrons to be considered stable. And so 
it shows the BF3 molecule and obviously boron only needs six electrons to be satisfied. Um, it doesn't need the full octet. And so um, it doesn't make a tetrahedral structure um, where it has, you know, three bonds and a lone pair at the top um, as like trigonal pyramidal. It's just trigonal planar. And then each F is satisfied by having eight electrons, um, three pairs from its lone pairs and one from the bond with boron. Um, expanded octets. In molecules that have D subshells available, the central atom can have more than eight valence electrons, but never more than 12. This means that any atom of an element from N equals three or greater can have expanded octets, but never elements in N equals two, C, N, O, etc. Oh, okay. So I didn't know that. So apparently only ones can have expanded octets. They have to have D subshells available. Um... Let me see. In molecules that have D subshells available, the central atom can have more than eight valence electrons, but never more than 12. Okay. And this means that it has to be an element from the N equals three or greater, but never elements of N equals two. And when you think about that, that makes sense that they would have to be from energy level three because the D block doesn't even start until 3D. There's no 2D. So 3D, 4D, 5D, you know, like that's all that's all safe. And so that completely eliminates like boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and fluorine, like being able to make expanded octets. And we saw that with boron having the, what did they call it? Incomplete octet. And so I think that's really helpful to look out for. And we see that some examples are PCL5, SF4, and XEF4, um, which are all, let's see, phosphorus is in the third energy level, so sulfur is in the third energy level, and xenon is in, let's see, two, three, four, fifth energy level, and it's actually a noble gas. And so it forms like the octet, expanded octet, and it's got like the octahedral um, like square planar, I believe, like where it's like two electrons, what? let me think, uh, a lone pair on the top and bottom, kind of squishing it, and then it goes out and makes like an X with the bonds for XEF4. Um, so yeah, formal charge. Sometimes there's more than one valid Lewis structure for a molecule. Take CO3, oh, sake, sake CO2, carbon dioxide. It has two valid structures shown below. To determine the more likely structure, a formal charge is used. To calculate the formal charge, on atoms in a molecule, take the number of valence electrons for that atom and subtract the number of assigned electrons in the Lewis structure. When counting assigned electrons, lone pairs count as two and bonds count as one. Read that again really quick. To calculate the formal charge on atoms in a molecule, take the number of valence electrons for that atom, subtract the number of assigned electrons in the Lewis structure, and then when counting assigned electrons, the lone pairs count as two and bonds count as one. And so, okay, so it has two different drawings for CO2. One is a carbon double bonded to two oxygens, while the other one is a carbon single bonded to an oxygen on the left and triple bonded to an oxygen on the right. And so you'll get different formal charges based on how you structure, um, structure your molecule. Um, so you take valence electrons minus assigned, and that is formal charge. So for the one on the left, the left structure with the carbon double bonded to two oxygens, you have six valence for the oxygen, four for the carbon, six for the oxygen minus, and then the assigned electrons that it has are six, four, and six. So you end up with a formal charge of zero. 
versus the structure on the right with the carbon in the center double bonded to the O on the right and a single bonded to the O on the left. And from left to right, it reads for valence 646 versus assigned electrons only being 745. And then when you subtract those, you get negative one zero plus one. The total formal charge for a neutral molecule should be zero, which is on both diagrams. Additionally, the fewer number, so when you add them up, it should be zero. So negative one plus zero plus one will cancel out and be equal to zero. Um, additionally, the fewer numbers of atoms there are with an actual formal charge, the more likely the structure will be. So the left structure is the more likely one for CO2, the double bonded O's. For polyatomic ions, the sum of the formal charges on each atom should equal the overall charge on the ion. Okay, molecular geometry. Electrons repel one another, so when atoms come together to form a molecule, the molecule will assume the shape that keeps its different electron pairs as far apart as possible. When we predict the geometries of molecules using this idea, we're using the Vesper theory, which is valence shell electron pair repulsion model. In um, a model, oh, in a molecule with more than two atoms, the shape of the molecule is determined by the number of electron pairs on the central atom. So just remember that, like, the shape is determined by the number of electron pairs that are on that central atom. That determines the shape. The central atom forms those hybrid orbitals, each of which has a standard shape. Variations on the standard shape occur depending on the number of bonding pairs and lone pairs of electrons on the central atom. Here are some things that you should remember when dealing with the Vesper model. Double and triple bonds are treated in the same way as single bonds in terms of predicting overall geometry for a molecule. However, multiple bonds have slightly more repulsive strength and will therefore occupy a little more space than single bonds. Lone pair electrons pairs, sorry, lone electron pairs have a little more repulsive strength than bonding pairs, so molecules with lone pairs will have slightly reduced bond angles between the terminal atoms. And so we have to remember that double and triple bonds are treated in the same way as single bonds when we predict the geometry for the molecule. Um, like that doesn't really that doesn't really change depending on how many bonds you add. However, it's saying multiple bonds have slightly more repulsive strength and will therefore occupy a difference a little more space than single bonds. So they take up more space, but they're still treated the same way geometrically. And then that the lone pairs have more repulsive strength than bonding pairs. So like, just think about when you're bonding with somebody, you know, like you're chilling, you're not repulsive, you're not toxic. Like those lone pair electrons who are just grumpy because they're alone all the time. And so when you got a buddy, when you got a friend and you're bonding, you're like, you're just chilling. So just remember that the lone pairs are a little more repulsive, um, repulsive in strength than the bonding pairs and that the lone pairs will have a slightly reduced bond angle between the terminal atoms you know as they should they don't deserve to have a large bond angle crazy kids okay i'm gonna keep going <laughs> enjoy that commentary guys um following pages show the different hybridization and geometries that you might see on the test if the central atom has two electron pairs, then it has sp hybridization and its basic shape is linear. The number of lone pairs um, is zero. Geometry is B, A, B, just like straight across linear. 
Um, examples would be BeCl2, and like we talked about, CO2 has that linear shape, and it has the, I believe it's like the 180 degree angle. It doesn't say right here in the book for some reason, but it should be. If the central atom has three electron pairs and it has sp2 hybridization and its basic shape is trigonal planar and its bond angles are about 120 degrees and that makes sense like if you think about um y'all looking at a trigonal planar molecule it looks like it's about 120 degrees if you um picture the molecules coming from like a circle so number of lone pairs zero geometry trigonal planar and examples are bf3 so3 no3 minus and co32 um, and then we also have bent which is a lone pair at the top with two molecules coming down the bottom left and right um, so number of lone pairs would be one and an example of this would be so2 with s being the central atom o is being the bottom two with a lone pair in the top to satisfy s's valence sulfur's valence um, and we see that the angle between the terminal atoms in the bent shape is slightly less than 120 because of that extra lone pair repulsion. So a lone pair, like we said, creates more repulsion between the other atoms. Like the other atoms, the terminal atoms want to get away from those lone pairs because they're so toxic and repulsive. Like they just want to get away and therefore will have, um, a bent shape is slightly less than 120 degrees. So keep that in mind as well. If the central atom has four electron pairs, then it has sp3 hybridization and its basic shape is tetrahedral. Its bond angles are about 109.5 degrees. Number of lone pairs is zero. Geometry, um, tetrahedral. I mean, you got it. It's, I don't know what, it, it kind of looks like a tripod. Like if I were to like take my mic out, it's got three little legs on the bottom that are going out in like a pyramid shape. And then this kind of big, you know, you know, that one vertical molecule at the top. And that would look like CH4, NH4 plus, ClO4 minus, SO4 two minus, and PO4 three minus. So got a good bit of polyatomic ions in there. Um, and then another tetrahedral shape would be trigonal pyramidal. Um, which is the same thing, you know, the tripod legs, but you're replacing that top atom, that top terminal atom with a lone pair. And that would be like NH3, PCL3, ASH, ASH3, and SO3 2 minus. And then lastly, you have another bent tetrahedral molecule, which has two lone pairs and then two little terminal atom legs. Um, and that would be like H2O, water, OF2, and NH2 minus. And it says the angle between the terminal atoms in the trigonal pyramidal and bent shapes is slightly less than 109.5 degrees because of that extra lone pair repulsion. So it's going to be close to 109.5 for tetrahedral, like a standard tetrahedral. But just remember, as you add, you replace that terminal atom with a lone pair, that there will be more repulsion and that the, um, the angle between the terminal atoms will be reduced slightly if the central atom has five electron pairs its basic shape is trigonal bipyramidal um oh gosh how am i going to describe this this chonker number of lone pairs so you basically have the a molecule in the center with like it's kind of like a star you got five single bonds coming out or just five bonds coming out from that atom 
and this is called trigonal bipyramidal and an example of this would be PCL5 and PF5 and this is an example for sure of expanded octets um, because we can see like a phosphorus like making five bonds with two electrons per bond that's 10 electrons split between it when the normal is eight so just be aware of that um, and then we have another trigonal bipyramidal with one lone pair we replace one of those with one lone pair and that would be like SF4 and IF4 plus and that's called seesaw or it's also called a folded square or a distorted tetrahedron but I've never even heard of those so we're calling it seesaw um, and then replace it with two lone pairs and you've got three bonds and that is called T-shaped because you can see those three bonds kind of make like a sort of a T and you got two little lone pairs hanging out at the top. And you got CLF3 and ICL3 as examples. Um, and then linear, again, when you put three lone pairs and then you just have ABB going straight across. Um, and so you got two, elect two lone pairs on one side, one on the other, um, top and bottom. And then you have your Bs going out like two arms. Um, if you kind of look at it, it kind of looks like a little person, which is kind of cute with like little eyes and little toes if you look at the way the feet are. But anyway, the two lone pairs are. But anyway, I hope that doesn't confuse you. But examples of this linear but trigonal bipyramidal shape are XEF2 and I3-. Okay, if the central atom has six electron pairs, then its basic shape is octahedral with zero lone pairs. And, you know, every terminal atom there is there six going out kind of make like a hexagonal shape an example is sf6 so that's an expanded these are going to all be expanded octets um then with we replace it with one lone pair it's square pyramidal brf5 and if5 are examples and then with two lone pairs it's square planar and an example is xef4 and icl4 so going through i'm just going to read them okay linear examples just linear Okay, three electron pairs. It's trigonal planar. It can be trigonal planar or bent. Then we have, if it's got four areas of hybridization, it's sp3, it's tetrahedral, trigonal pyramidal, and bent. Then we've got five electron pairs. It's trigonal bipyramidal, uh, seesaw, T-shaped, and linear. And then with six areas of electron clouds, I guess. It's octahedral, square pyramidal, and square planar. All right, polarity. When a covalent bond forms between two atoms, electrons are shared. However, just because electrons are shared does not mean that they're shared equally. For instance, when an atom of chlorine and an atom of carbon bond, the chlorine atom has a stronger pull on the shared electrons due to its higher electronegativity. This means in the bonds between the carbon and the chlorine, the shared electrons, which are constantly moving, will spend more time around the chlorine atom than the carbon one. Technically, so basically this is like a mom and dad situation and chlorine's the mom, obviously. So all the children want to gravitate to her because feminism. I'm just kidding. Anyway, <laughs> or they just like her negative energy. Haha. <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know what's going on. Just ignore all of that. Type, the type of covalent bond in which electrons are unequally shared is called a polar covalent bond. I'm going to drink some water really quick. Okay, this type of covalent bond in which electrons are unequally shared is called a polar covalent bond. 
This causes something called dipoles. A dipole is an area of either negative or positive charge, and it's based on the likelihood that electrons form a bond. Oh, electrons from a bond will be found around an atom. In the diagram below, the carbon has a positive dipole, and chlorine has a negative dipole. Note that the dipoles are indicated by the lowercase versions of the Greek letter delta. So it shows a C bonded to a Cl, carbon bonded to a chlorine. And you can either designate that as like the delta plus for carbon, delta minus for Cl, or you'll also see it with the arrow. And the arrow just designates, it's like pointing like this way is where all the electrons want to go. And it's pointing to the chlorine. And that makes me think of that scene in Nemo where all the fish make the arrow. Just think of that. And that's where all the electrons want to go. And think of Nemo and Dory or Marlin and Dory as the electrons. And so chlorine is Sydney in this case is, yeah, I'm going to keep going. Note if two identical atom, atoms bond, such as chlorine molecule, the electrons can be equally shared, creating a nonpolar covalent bond in which no dipoles are present. And so if it's a Cl bonded to a Cl, they have like the same number of electronegativity and they just share the electrons more equally. So it's not really favoring one side or the other because they're basically the same um, versus with um, carbon and chlorine. Obviously, chlorine is way more electronegative and so it's going to attract more electrons and therefore the dipole is going to be, you know, geared towards or pointing towards chlorine. Okay, molecular polarity. In addition to individual bonds being polar, entire molecules can be polar as well. A molecule's polarity depends on both the polarity of its bonds, but even more importantly, on its overall molecular geometry. Take the carbon tetrachloride molecule CCL4 below. And so it shows CCL4, which is obviously nonpolar because everyone's valence shell is filled. You know, all these molecules and uh, carbon and chlorine all have a full oxide of eight. And with carbon in the center, creating four different bonds, it's got its eight there, and then chlorine connecting to the bond as one side, and then three lone pairs. And so they're all satisfied. Even though the CCL bond is polar, there are four of them, and the molecules shaped in such a way that the direction of each dipole cancels. Think of it like a giant electron tug of war. If each of the four chlorines are pulling on the electrons surrounding carbon with equal strength, all four forces would cancel out directionally, leaving the electron in the same place. Thus, CCL4 is a nonpolar molecule. But what if one of those chlorine atoms simply just wasn't there? Take NCl3, for example. There are three chlorine atoms pulling on nitrogen's electrons. However, the fourth possible bond location remains unfilled. Instead of housing a lone pair that belongs entirely to the nitrogen atom, oh, wait, sorry, I read that wrong. However, the fourth possible bond location remains unfilled, instead housing a lone pair that belongs entirely to the nitrogen atom. In this case, because chlorine is more electronegative than nitrogen, each chlorine atom will gain a negative dipole and the nitrogen atom will gain a positive dipole as shown below. And so you would draw, like this is a, um, a tetrahedral structure with the lone pair at the top. So it's a trigonal pyramidal structure and with N in the center and then Cl minuses on the bottom three legs of that tripod and then the lone pair at the top. And if you even think about it, it's like, like we were saying earlier, like the electron pair at the top causes repulsion for the other three chlorines. Like they just don't like that lone pair. Just think about it like the favorite child that's sitting on top of this pedestal. They're like, we don't like you. We're going to like, you know, go down and like all of that negative 
charge and all the negative energy, quote unquote, is going to be directed to those chlorines because they're going to be upset. And so that's the way I'm going to think about it. You guys can do whatever your interpretations are to make you remember it, but you can also draw it as, you know, all the chlorines getting the delta minuses and then the nitrogen has the N pl- the delta plus. Sorry, I'm cracking my back. Almost there, guys. Whether or not a molecule is polar is highly dependent on its molecular geometry. As a general rule of thumb, if the molecule is made up of different atoms and there are any lone pairs on the central atom, the resulting molecule is asymmetrical and will be polar. If there are no lone pairs on the central atom, then the molecule is symmetrical and the resulting molecule will be nonpolar. So basically, anytime you see um, different atoms and there's a lone pair on the central atom, usually it's going to be polar just because of that repulsion. Um, it's not really evenly distributed, as we can see with the repulsion. So just keep that in mind as well. Let me just check how many pages we have left. Oh, I lied. There's like a lot in this in this, um, this particular unit. Okay, we got about 10 more pages to go. So, okay, I'm gonna try to finish this in 15 minutes if I can to get y'all out within an hour. Also, because Lewis diagrams are specifically drawn with the least electronegative atom in the center, that is, the atom is least likely to attract electrons in polar molecules, the central atom generally has a positive dipole, while the terminal atoms have negative dipoles. An exception to this is molecules that have hydrogen as a terminal atom. Hydrogen's, so just remember central atom is like the center atom and the terminal is like the outside ones. Um, Okay, just... I think y'all knew that already. Um, hydrogen's electronegativity value is low enough, in this case when hydrogen's a terminal atom, that it will always be, uh, always have a positive dipole in a polar molecule, such as in the water molecule below. So we saw that water is obviously H2O and that it's the oxygen is the central atom and then the hydrogens are the terminal atom. However, the dipole is still pointing towards the oxygen because oxygen is still the most electronegative. So it doesn't really matter if it's the terminal atom or the central atom. And just um, keep in mind like which ones are actually electronegative and that's the way the arrow needs to turn. So just don't always assume that it goes towards the terminal atom. Finally, one last note, a common exception of the lone pairs on the central atom makes things polar is the square planar shape such as BRCL4 minus below. The four terminal atoms in a square planar shape are in the same plane, and as such, the square planar molecules are frequently nonpolar. So keep that in mind as well. It's kind of very even structure. The term exception sure did get used a lot in this in this section, but when it comes down to it, understanding polarity is about combining the concepts of electronegativity and the molecular geometry and figuring out at the end result. Figuring out the end result. While the above section gives some good quick and Dirty tips, quick and dirty. Okay, thanks, Princeton. Um, on figuring out molecular polarity, the best way of learning is to fully understand how those two concepts interact and then applying that knowledge. And then we talk about IMFs. Y'all, my eyes hurt, but stick around. I'm, I'm, I'm determined to get this done. <sighs> okay, IMFs are the forces that exist between molecules in a covalently bonded substance. These forces are what needs to be broken apart in order for, co- for covalent substances to change phases. Note that when ionic substances change phase, 
bonds between the individual ions are actually broken. When covalent substances change phase, the bonds between the individual atoms remain in place, and it is just the forces that hold the molecules to other molecules that break apart. Dipole-dipole forces occur between polar molecules. The positive end of one polar molecule is attracted to the negative end of another polar molecule. So just dipole-dipole is between polar molecules. So just think the polar molecule part of, you know, one atom is coming together with another atom. So just remember like IMFs are the forces between two different, completely different molecules. And just think about like, for example, it's going to talk about water molecules bonding with one another and how the H's from one um, water molecule bind with the O's, oxygens from another molecule because they'll be, you know, it's like a lock and key. Positive wants to go with negative, you know, or else they'll repel each other. Uh, Molecules with greater polarity will have a greater dipole-dipole attraction. So molecules with larger dipole moments tend to have a higher melting and boiling point. Dipole attractions are relatively weak, however, and these substances melt and boil at very low temperatures. Most substances held together by dipole-dipole attraction are gases or liquids at room temperature. Excuse me, I need to burp. Um, And then it shows NCl3 molecules having dipole-dipole react, dipole-dipole attractions to one another and we see that the, C, the negatively charged Cl minuses want to attract the positively charged N um, atoms from the other atom and then vice versa. And so, yeah, that's the dipole. It's just symbolized by um, a dashed line between the two. Okay, hydrogen bonds, y'all. Oh, that's so I completely messed that up earlier with that example. Like, that's not dipole dipole, that's totally hydrogen with water molecules, but it's kind of the same concept. Um, hydrogen bonds are a special type of dipole dipole. Okay, cool. I feel a little better now. <laughs> In a hydrogen bond, the positively charged hydrogen end of a molecule is attracted to the negatively charged end of another molecule containing an extremely electronegative element fluorine, oxygen, or nitrogen. So it's going to be an H and an N, H and O, and H and F. That's what hydrogen bonds. It has to be H and then N-O-F. N-O or F. Hydrogen bonds are much stronger than normal dipole-dipole forces because when a hydrogen atom gives up its lone pair electron, lone electron to a bond, its positively charged nucleus is left virtually unshielded. Substances that have hydrogen bonds, such as water and ammonia, have a higher melting and boiling point than substances that are held together by only other types of intermolecular forces. Water is less dense as a solid than as a liquid because of its hydrogen bonds, um, and they force the molecule in in ice to form a crystal structure, which keeps them further apart than they are in the liquid form. All right, so just remember hydrogen is the strongest. It's a type of dipole-dipole, but it's between HNOF and... um, it's because the, that hydrogen atom is virtually left unshielded and therefore those kind of like electronegative, super highly electronegative items can kind of like take advantage of it. So rip hydrogen, but I mean like water's, water's water because of you. So we appreciate you. Okay, London dispersion forces. Um, London dispersion forces occur between all molecules. These very weak attractions occur because of the random motions of electrons on atoms within molecules. At a given moment, a nonpolar molecule might have more electrons on one side than on the other, giving it an instantaneous polarity. 
So that's like the difference. Like in, it's an instantaneous polarity. It only lasts for a second. It's not really like always going to be pointing there. It's just it's just there for a minute. From that fleeting instant, the molecule will act as a very, very weak dipole. Since LDFs depend on the random motions of electrons, molecules with more electrons will experience greater London dispersion forces. So among substances that experience only London dispersion forces, the one with more electrons will generally have higher melting and boiling points. London dispersion forces are even weaker than dipole-dipole forces, so substances that experience only London dispersion forces melt and boil at extremely low temperatures and tend to be gases at room temperature. As molecules gain more electrons, the London dispersion forces between them start to become more and more significant. So more electrons, more significant London dispersion forces because there's more sea of electrons to move. Um, and create a dipole with. Comparing the boiling points of a nonpolar substance with a large number of electrons versus a polar substance with fewer electrons is difficult and there's no simple rule to follow. For instance, water has hydrogen bonds and boiling point of 100 degrees. Butene, C4H8, and octane, C8H18 are both C8H18 are both completely nonpolar molecules and while butane's boiling point is 34 degrees, Octane's is 125 degrees. Even though octane has no permanent dipoles, it has so many electrons that its London dispersion forces are significantly enough that they can create greater intermolecular attractions than even the hydrogen bonds in water. Wow. Even though octane has no permanent dipoles, it has so many electrons there that its LDFs are enough that they create greater intermolecular attractions than even hydrogen in water. So just like all these electrons really crowd in. The role of London dispersion forces is often determined by comparing the molar mass of molecules. However, if it's not, um, it is not the mass itself which affects the strength of the IMFs. Rather, it is simply that a mass based on protons and neutrons increases as, oh, increases, so too do the number of electrons as the molecule must remain electrically neutral. So as mass, which is based on, as we talked about in episode one, based on protons and neutrons, as that mass increases, the number of electrons increases along with it because logic, think about it, but the molecule has to remain electrically neutral. All right, bond strength. Ionic substances are generally solids at room temperature. Turning them into liquids and melting them requires bonds holding the lattice together to be broken. Amount of energy needed for that is based on the Coulombic attraction between the molecules. Covalent substances, which are liquid at room temp, will boil when the intermolecular forces between them are broken. For molecules with similar sizes, the following IMF ranking can help you determine the relative strength of the IMFs within the molecules. Hydrogen bonds, so A, hydrogen bonds, B, non-hydrogen bonds, permanent dipoles, C, London dispersion forces, temporary dipoles, and I, larger molecules are more polarizable and have stronger London dispersion forces because they have more electrons. So more electrons means more polarizable. It's more likely to become polar temporarily. And like we were talking about with like butane and octane, they have so many electrons that they're so polarizable that even sometimes the LDFs are, high, are significant enough that they create greater IMF attractions than even hydrogen bonds and water do. So 
um, this is still talking about bond strength, the melting and boiling point of covalent substances are almost always lower than the melting and boiling point of ionic ones. Sorry, y'all, my throat is dying. Okay, metallic bonding, which often only involves one type of atom, tends to be very strong and thus metals, particularly the transition metals, tend to have high melting points. Network covalent bonding is the strongest type of bonding there is and is very difficult to cause substances that exhibit network covalent bonding to melt. And just remember the network covalent bonding, let me go back to that. I believe it was the bonding between um, obviously like non, non-metal atoms. Yeah, it was, let's see, lattice covalent bonds network solids, um, very hard and high melting and boiling points. And examples were like carbon dioxide or carbon, sorry, carbon in diamond or graphite form and then silicon in quartz form as SiO2. And so it's saying that these ones have very high melting and boiling points just because they don't have really like a flow of electrons. Um, But still, even then, those are always lower than the melting and boiling points of ionic ones. So ionic is the most. Metallic bonding, metallic bonding, which often only involves one type of atom, tends to be very strong and thus, oh yeah, that was what I was saying, network covalent bonding is the strongest type of bonding there is. It's very difficult to cause substances that exhibit network covalent bonding to melt. Okay, so like even then, like they're still more, not as malleable as metals are. So it's still saying that they cause, that they're the strongest type of bonding that there is okay bonding in phases oh gosh i'm not gonna make it with an hour i'm so sorry we're gonna try bonding in phases the phase of a substance is directly related to the strength of the intermolecular forces solids have highly ordered structures where the atoms are packed tightly together while gases have atoms spread so far apart that most of the volume is free space and then it shows a picture of a solid liquid and gas at room temp, and we see like ionic solid, liquid, H bonds, maybe, um, and then gas is like LDFs. In other words, substances, substances that exhibit weak intermolecular forces, such as London dispersion forces, tend to be gases at room temp. Nitrogen is an example of this. Substances that exist exhibit strong inter- IMFs, such as hydrogen bonds, tend to be liquids at room temp. A good example is water. Ionic substances don't experience intermolecular forces. Instead, their phase is determined by the ionic bond holding the ions together um, in the lattice. Because ionic bonds are generally significantly stronger than intermolecular forces in covalent molecules, ionic substances are usually solid at room temp. Okay, quick vapor pressure. Beyond helping to determine the melting point and boiling point of covalent substances, the relative strength of the intermolecular forces in a substance can also predict several other properties of that substance. The most important of these is vapor pressure. Vapor pressure arises from the fact that the molecules inside a liquid are in constant motion. If those molecules hit the surface of the liquid with enough kinetic energy, they can escape the intermolecular forces holding them to the other molecules and transition to the gas phase. They're like, let me out, y'all. The process is called vaporization. It's not to be confused with a liquid boiling. When a liquid boils, energy in the form of heat is added, increasing the Ke kinetic energy of all the molecules in the liquid until all the IMFs are broken. For vaporization to occur, no outside energy needs to be added. Note that there's a direct relationship between temperature and vapor pressure. So increased Ke, increased temperature, 
increase vapor pressure. However, well, it's saying those are different things, but they all are kind of related. Um, the higher the temperature of a liquid, the faster the molecules are moving and more likely they are to break free of the other molecules. So temp and vapor pressure are directly proportional. If two liquids are at the same temperature, the vapor pressure is dependent primarily on the strength of the intermolecular forces within the liquid. The stronger the IMFs are, the less likely it is that molecules will be able to escape the liquid and the lower the vapor pressure for the liquids will be. So increase IMFs, decrease vapor pressure, and that makes sense because if they're held strongly together, it's going to, they're not going to be able to escape as regularly, so vapor pressure will decrease. Okay, we did 17 pages so far and we got nine left. Guys, we're almost there. All right, solution separation. We can use intermolecular forces and the various Coulombic attractions that occur between ions and polar molecules in order to help separate various substances out from each other. There are several ways to do this, solutes and solvents. There's a basic rule for remembering which solutes will dissolve and which solvents like dissolves like. That means that polar or ionic structure, or sorry, read those again. This means that polar ionic solutes such as salt will dissolve in polar solvents such as water. This also means that nonpolar solutes such as oils are best dissolved in nonpolar solvents. When ionic substance dissolves, it breaks up into ions and that's called dissociation. Free ions in a solution are called electrolytes because they can conduct electricity. The more ions that are present in an ionic compound, the greater the conductivity of that compound will be when those ions are dissociated. For instance, a solution of magnesium chloride will dissociate into three ions, one Mg2 plus and two Cl minuses. A solution of sodium chloride will dissociate into just two ions, Na plus and Cl minus. Thus, a solution of magnesium chloride will conduct electricity better than a solution of sodium chloride if both solutions have identical concentrations. Paper chromatography. Chromatography is the separation of a mixture by passing it in solution through a medium in which the components of the solution move at different rates. There are several major types of chromatography. The first is paper chromatography, in which paper is the medium through which the, the solution passes. Many chemical solutions, such as the ink found in most pens, are a mixture of a number of covalent substances. Each of these substances has its own polarity value and thus has a different affinity depending on the solvent. One of the most common paper chromatography experiments involves the separation of pigments in black ink. Black ink is usually made up of substances, substances of different colors, but when combined, create black. In paper chromatography, a piece of filter paper is suspended above a solvent so that the very bottom of the paper is touching the solvent and the ink in question is dotted onto a line at the bottom of the filter paper that starts out just above the solvent level. As the solvent climbs the paper, uh, as the solvent climbs the paper, the various substances inside the ink will be attracted to the polar water molecules. The more polar the substance is, the more it will be attracted to the water molecules and the further it will travel. You might end up with something that looks like this and it shows like that gradient on the paper chromatography sheet. Looking at the strip, you can conclude the ink was made of three different substances. That the one that traveled the furthest with the water was the red pigment, experienced the strongest attraction and was the most polar, whereas the ones that didn't travel very far from the original starting line, the blue pigment, um, was the least polar. Paper chromatography is the most useful with colored substances, which is why ink is used in the above example. If there were components of the ink that had no visible color, you would not be able to see them on the filter paper, and that's one major limitation of paper chromatography. The distance the ink travels along the paper is measured via the retention or retardation factor. I like the retention factor. 
also known as the RF value, and the RF value is calculated as such. RF equals distance traveled by solute over distance traveled by solvent front. front. Okay, distance traveled by solute over distance traveled by solvent front. I feel like we don't really need to know this, so I'm going to skip it. Goes into column chromatography. Okay, distillation might be important. Um, distillation takes advantage of different boiling points of substances in order to separate them. For instance, if you have a mixture of water boiling point 100 degrees and ethanol boiling point 78 degrees and then heat the mixture to 85, the ethanol will boil but the water will not. And then you can run it through a condenser and you can distill it and, you know, like boiling. If you have, you say you have ethanol and water together and you want to separate them, you know that like, like it's saying, you boil you boil it. It's uh, if it's at least if it's in between seventy eight to hundred degrees, then the ethanol will boil out, and you'll be left with the water, and you'll have a distillate. Okay, and that'll separate them. Cool. Kinetic molecular theory for ideal gas: the following assumptions can be made. Kinetic energy of an ideal gas is directly proportional to its absolute temperature. Greater the temperature, greater the average kinetic energy of the gas molecules. The average kinetic energy of a single gas molecule can be um, shown by the equation Ke equals one half mv squared, where m is the mass of the molecule in kilograms, v is the speed of the molecule in meters per second, and Ke is in joules. So you got kilograms times meters per second squared is equal to joules, which is literally what a joule is. The several different gases are present in a sample at a given temperature, then all the gases will have the same average kinetic energy. That is, the average kinetic energy of a gas depends only on the absolute temperature, not on the identity of the gas. Um, the volume of an ideal gas particle is insignificant when compared with the volume in which the gas is contained. Um, okay, so you, you it's saying volume of an ideal gas particle is insignificant when compared with the volume in which the gas is contained. So look at the value um, with which the volume the gas is contained. Um, there are no forces of attraction between the gas molecules and an ideal gas. Um, gas molecules are in constant motion, colliding with one another and with the walls of their container without losing any energy. And so I think those are the assumptions, right, of kinetic molecular theory. All right, Maxwell-Boltzmann diagrams. Maxwell-Boltzmann diagram shows the range of velocities for molecules of a gas. Molecules at a given temperature are not all moving at the same velocity. When determining the temperature, we take the average velocity of all the molecules and use that in the relevant equation to calculate temperature. You do not need to know what equation, that equation unless you're taking AP Physics. All you need to know here is that temperature is directly proportional to kinetic energy. First type of Maxwell-Boltzmann diagram involves plotting the velocity distributions for the molecules of one particular gas at multiple temperatures. In the diagram below, there are three curves representing a sample of nitrogen gas at 100K, 300K, and 500K. And it's got velocity on the x-axis and number of molecules on the y-axis. And it seems like it goes so from left to right, it goes from 100 to 300 to 500K. And the curve is steeper starting at 100. It's like a big like protruding hill and then it's like at 300k it's more of like a lower hill and then 500 it's like almost completely flat as you see the higher the temperature of the gas the larger the range is for the velocities of the individual molecules gases at higher temperature have greater kinetic energy and as all the molecules in this example have the same mass the increased ke is due to the increased velocity of the gas molecules 
Maxwell-Boltzmann diagrams are also used to show a number of different gases at the same temperature. The diagram below shows helium, argon, and xenon gas all at 300 K. Um, and so it kind of shows the same picture, but they're all at 300 K this time. And it looks very similar. They like only thing they changed looks like the labels are XE, AR, and HE going from left to right. So XE is the huge hill. And then you got argon lower and then HE even further. So meaning that HE travels the fastest because let me think, let me look at my periodic table. Yeah, because obviously helium's towards the top of the table and has the least number of atoms, electrons, everything. It's just a lighter molecule, and so it's able to travel the furthest, even though at the same temperature. So when comparing all those noble gases, xenon has so many more atoms, so it's going to be slower um, than ar- slower than argon and then helium. So it makes sense when looking at velocity from left to right. Okay, effusion. Um, okay. Okay, I guess it goes on to talk about that. Okay, effusion is the rate at which a gas will escape from a container through microscopic holes in the surface of the container. For instance, even though the rubber or latex that makes up a balloon may seem solid, after the balloon is filled with gas, it will gradually shrink over time. This is due to the fact that there are tiny holes in the surface of the balloon through which the even tinier gas molecules can escape. The rate at which gas effuses from a container is dependent on the speed of the gas particles. The faster the particles are moving, the more often they hit the sides of the container and the more likely they are to hit a hole and escape. The rate of effusion thus increases with temperature, but also if examining gases at the same temperature, the gas with the lower molar mass will effuse first. It's likely you've experienced this. A balloon filled with helium will deflate more rapidly than one filled with air, which is composed primarily of nitrogen and oxygen, or one filled with carbon dioxide. There's a formula that quantifies that rate at which a gas will effuse, but there is beyond the scope. That's beyond the scope of the exam. As long as you understand the basic principles behind effusion, you should be able to answer any questions this topic may come up. One, two, three more pages, guys. We can do it. Almost done. I'm sorry, this is so long. You can use the ideal gas law equation to calculate any of the four variables relating to gas, provided that you already know the other three. The ideal gas equation is PV equals NRT, where P is pressure of gas in ATM, volume of gas in liters is V, N is moles of gas, R is the gas constant, 0.0821 liters ATM per mole Kelvin, and T is the absolute temperature of the gas in Kelvin. Oh my gosh, my throat is probably like bleeding right now. Okay. You can also manipulate the ideal gas equation to figure out how changes in each of its variables affect the other variables. The following equation, often called combined gas law, can only be used when the number of moles is held constant. Um, this is the P1V1 over T equals P2V2 over T, um, where PV and T are the same as, as listed. Um, remembering that pressure and temperature are directly proportional, whereas um, as well as V and T are directly proportional, but P and V are indirectly, inversely proportional. Be comfortable with the following simple relationships. If the volume is constant, as pressure increases, temperature increases. As temperature increases, pressure increases. If the temperature is constant, a pressure increases, volume decreases. As volume increases, pressure decreases. Boyle's law, which is Boyle's law. If the pressure is constant, uh, temperature increases, volume increases, volume increases, temperature increases, and that's Charles' law. Dalton's law um, states that total pressure of a mixture of gas is just the sum of all its partial pressures of the individual gases in the mixture. P 
total is PA plus BB plus BC, PC plus dot, 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 dot. You should also note partial pressures of a gas is directly proportional to the number of moles of the gas percent in the mixture. So if, excuse me, if 25% of the gas in a mixture is helium, then the partial pressure due to helium will be 25% of the total pressure. Okay, this concept, often represented by the variable x, which is chi, is called the mole fraction. Partial pressure is PA, partial pressure equals P total times chi of that gas, where chi is moles of gas A over total moles of gas. So partial pressure of the gas is the total pressure times the moles of gas, uh, mole, moles of that gas with respect to the entire moles in the system. Okay, deviations from ideal behavior. At low temperature or high pressure, gases have behave in a less than ideal manner. That's because the assumptions made in kinetic molecular theory become invalid under conditions where gas molecules are packed too tightly together. Because remember, the ideal conditions are literally like ideal standard temperature and pressure, I believe. So when temperature and when you have a low temperature and high pressure, the gases will not behave the way that you think they will. Two things that happen when gas molecules are packed too tightly. One, the volume of the gas molecules becomes significant. The ideal gas equation does not take the volume of gas molecules into account, so the actual volume of gas under non-ideal conditions will be larger than the volume predicted by the ideal gas equation. Gas molecules attract one another and stick together. Ideal gas equation assumes that gas molecules never stick together. When a gas is packed tightly together, intermolecular forces become significant, causing some gas molecules to stick together. When gas molecules stick together, there are fewer particles bouncing around and creating pressure, so the real pressure in non-ideal situation will be smaller than the pressure predicted by the ideal, ideal gas equation. Even under normal conditions, gases will still show, on the last page, show some deviation from ideal behavior due to the IMFs between the various gas molecules. These interactions are generally minimal, but when considering the likelihood that a gas will deviate from ideal behavior, stronger IMFs will lead to more deviations. Water with hydrogen bonding would be significantly more likely to deviate from the ideal behavior than CH4, which only has London dispersion forces. If you're looking at gases that have similar IMF types, remember that the more electrons a gas has, the more polarizable it is, and the more it is more likely to deviate from the ideal behavior. For instance, within the noble gas, which has only LDFs, argon's more likely to deviate from ideal behavior than helium, but less likely to deviate than xenon. You may be asked about the de density of a gas. The density of a gas is measured in the same way as the density of a liquid or solid in mass per unit of volume. Density equals mass over volume, where mass is in grams usually, and volume is usually in liters. Um, and then it just goes into the different ways you can write it, which is density of any gas can be also determined by combining density equation with the ideal gas law. So if D is M over V, then V is also M over D. Um, substituting that into the ideal gas law, you get PM over D equals NRT, then rearrange D equals PM over NRT. D equals P molar mass over RT, and so therefore molar mass equals DRT over P. And the way my chem teacher, shout out to Dr. Campbell at Milton High School, always said it was like MM kind of looks like two little cat ears. And so cats, when they make their litter box, will put their dirt over their pee. So it's like molar mass equals 
DRT over P. And so that's how I've always remembered it. So, oh my goodness. Thanks for bearing through that. I definitely learned a lot. I hope you guys did too. It definitely helps me when I'm definitely a very audiovisual person. So I hope that this helps someone and uh, yeah, that it's a blessing to somebody. Um, yeah, as always, speak love and live it and blessings on your exams, y'all. Bye. Thank you.